Hi there, Matthew Parsons. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thanks. What can I do for you? What is Ghost Echoes? Ghost Echoes is a music history podcast with secret rules. Rule number one is... And then rule number two states that... And rule number three is that I'm not allowed to tell the listeners what the first two rules are. If you want to figure it out, you're going to have to subscribe to Ghost Echoes wherever you get podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm your host today, Editor-in-Chief Michael Rothman, and I'm up here secluded in a lake house in western Maine. Why? Because we are unpacking 1992's Gerald's Game. Yes, you've seen the Mike Flanagan movie, but have you read the novel? I have, and I'm very excited. Not looking too good there, partner. Greetings. This is Dan. (laughs) Some people call me Maurice. Wah, wah, Flieger. And we are discussing Gerald's game today. Um, Everyone would like to introduce themselves. Please do it in a circular manner, even though we're all calling in. Uh, so this is Aisha, uh, life support system for you know what. <laughs> and who else is on the line? This is Jen, good wife, Adam. <laughs> and finally. Oh, this is Lara, Tootsie, Unterstall. <laughs> Definitely not dying. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're all healthy and we're all happy to be reading Gerald's Game. What a great, happy novel to kick off this disease-infested week. Yeah. Perfect thing to be trapped home with. Yeah, good thing thing to be tied to the bed with. (laughs) So as that Joker was saying in his intro before he had an untimely heart attack, we were discussing Gerald's Game, 1992's horror classic about being handcuffed to a bed, in fact, and tortured with inner demons as well as some external. So just uh, to kick things off, I'd like to know which version of the book you listened to or read. I have the version that has the Netflix stamp on it, like now a movie. So obviously (laughs) one of the newer uh, publications. So I actually watched the movie before I read the book. I have the uh, 1993 Signet paperback edition. Oh, that's a cool edition. It is really, yeah, it's got the handcuff on the cover and it's got the little map of Maine in the middle with the path of the um, the eclipse, which is really cool. That is cool. That's much cooler than mine, which is a Kindle edition because I'm a <laughs> fucking Philistine. Uh, let's see. It's, it, uh, the cover is just, you know, red and black with handcuffs. It seems to be pre-Netflix maybe. The description talks about Netflix, but there is no Netflix stamp on mm. it. Um, yeah. I got it on Kindle because I was traveling for work two weeks ago, and uh, domestically, and I wanted to read it on the plane, <laughs> um, where I may or may not have contracted 
a certain virus. <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent. <laughs> I actually did the audio book by uh, Lindsay Cruz read it. And mm-hmm. I, I listened to that too, yeah. Yeah, it turns out she's David Mamet's ex-wife. I did not know that. <gasps> really? Mm. Yeah, so I actually went on a deep internet dive about her, but it, it was good. It was pleasant. You know, great background material throughout the day, just hearing someone ultimately being tortured just terribly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's interesting that she was married to David Mamet and was reading this book because of the, like, power dynamics between men and women. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm not casting any aspersions about David Mamet, but... I don't know. He seems like he'd be controlling. That's all. Oh, I 100% agree. And I think that's a good way to segue into the uh, hook of this book. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly. Would anyone like to take a shot? What would you say if you had to do the elevator pitch for Gerald's game? Uh, the old ball and chain just got <laughs> literally, I, I don't, I don't know. Nice. I mean, it's a pretty simple hook because it's just a lady is handcuffed to a bed, husband right. dies, she's trapped, you know? It's a really simple concept, and I think it's interesting how much he's able to do with just that kind of idea and what came out of that story, you know? Right, because there's not that many characters to it, so most of it's all within her own head, like, what's Mm -hmm. going on. Yeah, I I would actually compare it to Lolita, but not funny at all. Um, (laughs) Sort of from the other perspective, um, it's the person who's suffering the assault versus the uh, perpetrator in uh, Lolita. But yeah, it's essentially a husband and wife are trying to kickstart their marriage, and the husband gets really into sort of, like, kink BDSM, but the wife's not as into it. And eventually he handcuffs her to a bed and she decides she doesn't want to go through with it, kicks him, and he has a heart attack and dies. And then she's trapped there for a number of days. Mm. We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> Just last week. Yeah. It's, there's social distancing right now. <laughs> yeah. And as Aisha was saying, too, there's not really that many characters in this. Um, the majority of them are actually sort of, I don't know if it's split personalities, but within her head, she sort of has these you know, people she's developed kind of as a coping mechanism for something that happened Mm -hmm. in her childhood. But let's get right into it. Here are the zeros and villains. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, (laughs) Basil! So the first character I guess we should discuss is Jessie. Would anyone like to describe Jessie? Well, she keeps describing herself as daughter of Tom, daughter of Maddie, sister of, I think I'm getting the names wrong, but um, mother of no one, wife of Gerald. And I think it's so interesting how she describes herself as her relationship to other people. But she's just like, I think she says she's 38 or 39, kind of upper middle class woman married to, well, I guess she would be in an upper class because she's married to a lawyer and they have a vacation house. So, mm-hmm. And the Republican. Yes, yeah. it does mention that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I just think she was a teacher and then yeah, for a is now while. a housewife. Yeah. She kind of has no identity. She just tries a bunch of different projects to like pass the time of her life mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah, I think she it's established pretty early on that she lacks a core identity or a sense of core identity. And then the book is spent examining why exactly and how she gets back to herself. There's a point where I think it talks about how she really has no connection to anybody other than her husband, too, other than, like, passing or being on, a, like, committees or something. Because there's she's talking about how no one would miss her once she is in her predicament and how long mm. it would take, which I think. Yeah. And, I mean, once we find out why, I think it's 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 clear to see why she has distanced herself from so many people. 
Right. The only real friend that she had, she kind of pushed away as well and hasn't talked to in years, doesn't really know what's going on with her life as well. And she could have reached out, but in her mind, she's put up this block to like, there's no point in even reaching out to this person. But it's interesting how that one friend becomes a voice in her head. Mm -hmm. Ruth? Yes. Yeah. Mm hmm from uh, I think it was her college roommate or like after college roommate I think it was college yeah yeah Mm -hmm. college roommate yeah Ruth kind of I I think that's like you know an interesting thing and it is the way that he manages to get away with being stuck with one character throughout this whole novel is by fully developing these separate identities in her head they're not just like little aspects of her personality they are notably different and based on herself as a child or who she might have been you know, mm-hmm. if she if she had found her in her voice at, via Punkin, uh, and then there's the good wife, and then there's Ruth, who is a really distinct identity. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting how he really goes out of his way several times to mention, like, he's not leaning into these split personalities as some kind of, like, mental illness. Like, he, she is aware of them, and she's aware that they're yes. all voices of her, not necessarily, like, she is becoming another person, which I think is interesting. Definitely. She definitely even mentions that, like, she acknowledges that these voices are in a coping mechanism, mm-hmm. and you start to get, like, glimpses of that something happened and that we're about to jump into the story of what happened to create these voices, because they weren't always there, but at a certain point in her life, the first voice came, and afterwards, it's just, like, these are who she listens to for certain occasions and, like, either ignores when she knows that she shouldn't, things like that. So she's really accustomed to them, but they're mm-hmm. not a separate entity. Right. And I almost think of them like as kind of roles she plays, like when Mm. she's listening to Good Wife, she's she's becoming what Good Wife would do in the situation. And when she's listening to Ruth, she's trying to like take on aspects of uh, Ruth's personality. And if you look at this through the narrative of trauma, like Punkin is a part of herself that has been ignored for a long time. So she's kind of it's interesting that she doesn't come out until like later in the story, too. Yeah, in my notes, I had so the three main characters. It was the goody, good wife, Burlingham, who mm-hmm. I thought sort of represented, you know, a form of uh, shame that's put upon women. You know, what is the proper thing to do? Kind of also mm-hmm. her mother. Um, you know, we mentioned Ruth, who I think represents something aspirational, um, sort of the kind of character that deals with the reality of the situation, but also has a inner anger for, you know, justly so. And then mm-hmm. Punkin, who you mentioned, is sort of a childhood innocence that she's striving to get back toward, but probably is not going to happen. And that's a good segue into why she was so traumatized. Uh, Grossly, during an eclipse, her father uh, dressed her up and sat her on his lap. And, well, from there, (laughs) he he goosed her, which is a term that King uses liberally in this. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and it's, it's, it's pretty disgusting. And I found with this book... I'll just say, I thought this book was kind of repetitive, and they kept going back to that specific moment of trauma. And I, the third or fourth time they were going into it, I was like, wow, do we really need all of these details, you know, of exactly like... back around. Yeah, the veins clenching on her father's forehead as he ejaculates Mm -hmm. onto her panties. It was just too much. Yeah, I I have a lot of thoughts about that in the pound cake section, kind of like what is... What is too much and what is serving the narrative, you know, here? I I have a lot of conflicted feelings about that. Same. Yeah, and that's why I compared it to Lolita in the beginning, because I think that book, you know, similar subject matter, but it does such a clever job of maintaining some kind of sick humor about it. Whereas with this, I was just, this is getting gratuitous for me. And 
Ugh, so it was very hard to read. <laughs> yeah, it very. took me a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a very venomous book, I found. Um, I had to keep pausing it because after a while, it was just bringing my mood down. Right. <laughs> yeah. the, the amount of, like, self-deprecation and hatred, even, like, in the beginning, because we forgot about one character or one particular voice was Nora, which was, I think, her therapist for, like, yeah. a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And she does this countdown of, like, it's supposed to be things to calm you, but she ends up turning it in this, like, psychoanalytical, like, deprecation analysis of herself mm -hmm, where everything shame. is like yeah everything is shame and it's again like that victim when you become a victim it's hard to see that it's not your fault sometimes it's hard to see that you know you are more than this and so she's already just like has a sick twisted version of or look at herself mm -hmm. yeah and I, I think go ahead oh, go ahead go ahead Jill. I was oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. We're gonna have a lot of no, no. Oh, I know. Coronavirus. Like, yeah, <laughs> this is a lot of fun, we're gonna have but... a lot of uh, Midwestern standoffs, which is what I call when you go. You no, you go, you go. I oh go. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so I was just gonna say, um, I, I, the self-deprecation. I, I, I liked it as a characterization of her because mm. it was very relatable. Like you know, if yes. anyone who's gone through not even the level of trauma that she has, obviously, but like you know, bullying or, or just general self-hatred over the course of one's life. Like I could really relate to, you know, when she talks about the legs, she's like, ah, they're shitty and small and fat, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it felt very believable. Um, and it was integrated into every aspect of her personality. So it's like, it just, I think it worked really well as a characterization of her. And one thing that I'll say, I've kind of been on a journey with this book. This is the third time that I've read it. And the first time I think I read it in high school, um, and all I remember is like the gross hand part and the space cowboy. And then I reread it on like doing a chronological reread. And I got to it in um, in 2016 um, around October. And that was there were a lot of things that were happening in that year. Um, and for me specifically, like this was um, I was reading it after some life experiences that are a little bit similar to Jesse. Um, and this was one of the books that actually got me into therapy. And so that was what, four years later, like I'm reading it again and I'm seeing like, this feels like reading my thought processes, you know? And I think so much of this, yes. the way he's writing this is so accurate to how it actually feels like it, it like there were part times when I felt like he was in my head, like listening and like hearing the voices and it just, mm -hmm. and it was, it, but it, what the great thing, like when I was reading it the third time, cause there were parts that were really hard to read, but I was able to really see all of the work that I had been doing in therapy to kind of like, put all of these things in their places and like identify everything and I think just a, a lot of the the things that I pulled out to go into the little sections I thought just it amazed me to be a man who I assume doesn't really have these experiences to be able to write these processes because like I have a little mantra that I do that's like it's not quite as like these are my toes and it rhymes and it's cute it's like toes 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 heels 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 but I do that you know and that to see that represented I thought it was really comforting as hard as this was to read and to listen to like it was oddly like cathartic and comforting it made I, me wonder sorry no, <laughs> it just ahead. made go me ahead. on a grander scheme wonder like who did he talk to for this because I like you so said too. earlier I think it was Jen the the idea of like he has got into your head in a sense and like understood or you could relate to that and at the same point I was relating to this as well because then like when I was in university I did a lot of work volunteering with like sexual assault and like just in general like homeless 
women and thinking about this it was like it was very true to point but i was like as a man how is he understanding not that men can't go through trauma but there's like a separate version of trauma that we all experience Mm -hmm. and i am curious i didn't get the chance to do a deep rabbit hole because i was working on other things but i wanted to know like kind of who he got a the inspiration from because i know he dedicated it to his wife and her sisters Mm -hmm. but like how did he get this kind of like detail like where did it get come from was it just him pulling from stories and references that of people he knows or yeah i was i was i just will say i was impressed by it as well because it was like stephen king you know historically like we read misery last year or maybe it was two years ago i don't know how time works and and i was thinking about this book in relation to misery a lot and how much the paul sheldon character annoyed me for sort of his misogynistic asides and and thought processes and then this you know felt like so much more enlightened and more thoughtful and more accurate to the feminine experience, you know, and they kind of parallel each other with having two characters strapped to the bed. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I just thought it was really interesting. And I was almost a little shocked at how well he handled it for the most part. Like for a character who's topless for most of the book, I don't think he ever describes her breasts. Which yeah, is something he doesn't that he focus always does. I know. Yeah. Let's please clap. Please clap. Exactly. <laughs> I think there I was speculation that, that Tabitha actually wrote this, right? Ooh, that's interesting. I've heard that. Oh. Now, I don't think, I think this is totally King because there are things through throughout that are definitely him. But I wonder if she had a heavy hand in kind of guiding the narrative well, or editing. It's really interesting to hear the consensus seems to be um, that he did capture that sort of feminine voice. Because when I was reading it, I wasn't sure. You know, there were definitely some lines that made me cringe, and I was really interested to hear all of your thoughts because I couldn't tell if he was nailing it, you know, if he was off base. Um, But that does sound like he kind of got it, right? Occasionally. Occasionally. (laughs) Occasionally, yeah. I mean, there were a few moments, but it does make me wonder if maybe for this book he had the, you know, presence of mind to be like, hey, I'm going to listen to my female readers, my editors, and really be careful with this one. Because I I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I know he... um, yeah, I kind of get the sense that he doesn't really, he kind of does his own thing. He doesn't necessarily like listen to the editors too much or listen to the critics too much. I know he hates his critics and, you know, is, is critical of criticism. Um, so that this might've been one case where he was like, maybe I should just listen to the, the women in my life <laughs> right. about, the, Honestly, about this one. <laughs> yeah. When you think about the time period of when he released this book though, was it that early nineties, late eighties, there was kind of a movement for like female, even though it, wasn't always successful, but female empowerment. There were like women going to work and getting jobs. You had movies coming out kind of and books towards that end. So I wonder if that influenced his decision to be more open to the, that outside feedback. I'd love to think so. Yeah. Hopefully. I feel like this is an interesting book to read now because it's also really like a representation of the silent generation Mm -hmm. versus kind of how it's discussed now, like a lot of her internalizing and and not talking about it and thinking to herself, well, there's people out there that have had it so much worse. This kind of stuff happens to people every day. And it could have been, you know, you could have been raped, Jesse, like it could have been so Mm -hmm. much worse, like that kind of thinking seems to be really um, coming out even in articles you read about you know, women coming out talking about Cosby or Trump or, you know, et cetera. 
And that's one thing that I do enjoy. I don't want to say I enjoy it, but I like that the assault when and when I read it this time, I think I had forgotten how like detailed it was and how like what he actually did. I think I just had in my mind that she just sat on his lap and he jerked off. Um, and it could be that I had blocked some of that out. But I <laughs> appreciate that it wasn't the worst thing, that it wasn't like he didn't go as far as he could, because then I think it introduces this element of minimization and that like you can say like I would set rules for myself and I would say well if he didn't do this it doesn't count and if he didn't do this it doesn't count and I think you see her do that and say well it could have been way worse so I'm lucky and it's fine and I think that's something that so many survivors do and I, that's one of the reasons that it didn't bother me that he kept going back to the details. Because one of the things that I've had to do when I'm kind of piecing together and trying to pull up some memories is you have to keep going back to it and you have to like recognize the actual details and try to kind of ground yourself and then you have to back away from it and then you have to keep going because it's hard to do that. And I think the way he kind of goes in and out of that, I think kind of mirrors the way you would actually pull a repressed memory up, which is something that mm -hmm. I'm kind of in the middle of doing. And that leads me to think that he did talk to some survivors and and he talked to some therapists, too. Interesting. And so the only other character in this book besides Jesse who can be described as heroic is perhaps Brandon, the law partner, who mm -hmm. used to be Gerald's uh, you know, partner at the big corporate law firm. And he kind of helps Jesse toward the end of the novel, you know, cover things up. It doesn't seem that he fully understands her. And she kind of gets a sense from him that he could be a good guy, but she can still kind of see that. You know, there's a little bit of a creeping gaze, and he's a little bit John Wayne coming to rescue her. But I think that's a good segue into Gerald, who is probably the first villain that we really get exposed to. Would you guys like to discuss Gerald? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> just oh, so many levels. I just cringed every time. Like, when she was going through the initial uh, just description of him, I could just feel, like, my skin crawl, and I mm -hmm. thought of every, like asshole dude bro that I've met growing up and like had to deal with who didn't like value my opinion and it just like brought back a lot of things that you know a lot of anger I used to have as a youth when I wasn't able to like understand how to handle it so Gerald just like every time I heard him it cringed but also I saw the movie before I read the book so it was hard to kind of like I think I forgot who plays him in the movie, but like they make him seem more attractive in the mm -hmm. movie than the book. And so when I saw what she was dealing with, it made me think of a lot of like relationships like that, too, where you have really vivacious women with like plans and goals, even though you have some trauma and these type of men who like lob onto that and kind of get these women under uh, into relationships with them and he I don't know Gerald just reminds me of a lot of people I've met in my life yeah in the movie it's uh Bruce Greenwood plays uh or Stu yeah Bruce Greenwood plays mm -hmm. Gerald and I actually had seen the movie before I read the book as well and he is a lot more handsome he actually has a great older man body I thought in the movie mm -hmm. but in the book he's sort of yeah, <laughs> daddy um, he's a little but, bit of a silver fox <laughs> yeah definitely but in the book he's described more as like a pink pudgy man you uh, know corporate ruling. lawyer and I think Laura mentioned the, you know, silent generation. He kind of epitomizes the ideal. You know, he's a rich, well-to-do guy, debates buying a Porsche, kind of this post-Reagan, you know, dude bro capitalist. Um, but yeah, in the book, he, you know, Jesse points out that he clearly had issues of being bullied as a kid. And, you know, he sort of asserts himself now to kind of take back that power. But she sees right through that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it makes I, you wonder, like, did they ever really love each other, you know? Because mm. every, and I guess it's just the way it's presented, because he's really not in the book very long. Um, but he's just, she seems so repulsed by him throughout the time that he's alive and they're together. And he just seems so gross and menacing. But, I mean, if she you think does. about a trauma survivor, that's the kind of person that they might be attracted to because that's how they view love, and that's what they assume love is supposed to feel like. Because she definitely yeah, makes mean, it seem like that. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, yeah, like, obviously, you know, if you're going on the psychoanalytic tradition, her model for healthy relationships is her parents and her father, which <laughs> kind of dropped the ball there. Mm-hmm. Um, and. <laughs> And yeah, and and she does say at points, which I find hard to believe, given the whole current state of their relationship that, you know, they had made love and she, you know, really did was attracted to him at various points. And um, but yeah, I, I, I also think he is they, they seem to be like the classic, like late 80s status couple. They met at a Republican mixer. I keep walking in on the Republican <laughs> thing. I'm like, man, they met at a mixer. Someone for should say that. Bush. <laughs> Like, oh, man, fuck all of you. But, you know, yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. Anyway, that was the end of my thought. <clears throat> yeah, it, it's I, and I think, yeah, he, he's stable. And I think, you know, I, I don't speak from personal experience, but from what I understand, sometimes when you go through this kind of trauma, it's you're looking for stability in your life. Right. Your your stuff's been rocked. She probably saw something in him that like masked everything else that because when I think about my youthful relationships, when you're young, you kind of like see one good thing or maybe you're presented with that first good thing and that's all you see. But then like they've been together for years. So that one thing that maybe attracted to her and made him seem like a great guy is no longer uh, outweighing everything else that and you see that as she goes, she it's like she revisits who Gerald is throughout the book, even though it's like bits and pieces. And at the end, when she treats him basically like trash and steps on his body, you know, it goes from like this woman who kind of loved this guy and then started to hate him. And now it's just like, I'm past you. You're like, you are dead to me. You're a piece of garbage. Yeah. When she finally, you know, gets up from the bed. And I remember at one point she steps on Gerald's corpse and he, <laughs> he lets out like a farting noise with his mouth. And mm. she just has no pity for this guy. She's just like, fuck yeah. you, dude. And, you know, it's it's weird to think of, like, you could be married to someone and have so much contempt and hate for them. Um, but I think King really nails that venom because she seems like she can immediately spot the weakness in a person and just knows exactly, you know, how to pinpoint that. So as she's there, she's sort of manifesting a lot of her hatred onto Gerald's corpse, you know, even when it's getting torn apart by a dog. And I think that's a good segue to the next villain, the <laughs> dog. Oh, Prince? Is he a villain? He's not a villain. I don't think he's a villain. (laughs) Bad boy. No, Prince was a good boy. Well, he is starving. He was just doing what he could. Yeah. I have a lot of feelings about Prince. I I wrote more about Prince than any of the other characters. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you should talk about Prince then, because you seem like you have the most notes about him. (laughs) Who is Prince? (laughs) I said he was the only pure one here. Um I just I I don't know I really got stuck on the chapter from his POV just because Mm. well one obviously I love dogs two I hate people who abandon dogs and like and you know at at various points in the story Jesse and Prince you know are kind of on parallel tracks like they're you know toward the end of the novel she looks at him and says oh maybe I finally found a creature sorrier than me um I I Obviously, he's a dog. He's just doing what he needs to do. And I kind of hoped that at the end that Jesse would, I mean, she 
really had no opportunity to, but I was hoping it would be like Catherine Martin at the end of Silence of the Lambs with Precious. Like mm-hmm. she would rescue him and then they'd like go <laughs> off and into the sunset together and, and help each other heal. Uh, but this is just my own romanticism for just dogs kicking I would like that. Yeah. yeah. What about this theory that I've been reading online that the dog is actually the star child, the moon boy, moonbeam man. So it's sort of, you know, kind of like a life of pie situation where, because he is a cannibal that, you know, feast on dead bodies. We know that. And is this just another one of her coping mechanisms that she's watching her husband Mm. getting eaten? And it's actually Raymond Andrew Jobert, I believe is his name. Oh, yeah. Jobert. 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 <laughs> I love how he has three names. <laughs> yes. Like most good like serial, serial killers, killers do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's it. So I was trying to go back and find the passages, but it does seem that, because remember the dog Prince runs away as soon as the cannibal arrives. They're never quite mm-hmm. in the same scene at the same time. So I don't know if there was enough to support that theory. Um, but yes. Well, they said that they ran down the dog and like shot it or whatever. The cops yeah. did. Yeah, I guess Aww. that puts the gibosh on that. Yeah, Poor right. Prince. <laughs> sorry, <Yeah>. sorry. <laughs> but, all right, I kind of blocked friends. that out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I really locked in on it. It's all I could think about. I was like, but Prince, and then, it, you know, anyway. I feel like, though, that theory just doesn't click with me because there's points where he's, like, warning, and especially when you go from the point of view of Prince where he's, like, he senses it, he's like, there's something wrong. Like, I don't know, it just, how yeah. could that be Raven? Yeah, I think, like, narratively, that does make sense if, if you're having the point of view of the dog, it, it could not be the alter ego. Because um, he yeah. does, as he refers to her, what is it? The uh, bitch master? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hated that, though. I, that yeah. was one of my only things. I was like, why would the dog have internalized the term bitch? Anyway, that was my one complaint. <laughs> M- misogynistic Prince. Well, if you prince. look at Prince, <laughs> well, his owners. If you look at his arc, <laughs> if you look at Prince's arc in the story, like it kind of is like a microcosm of Jesse's, too, though, because he is coming from this like abusive house, and he was just abandoned, and he's so like cowed by humans, and so he's really afraid to go approach Gerald, and then he kind of empowers himself to advocate for himself and eat what he needs to do to survive and then he gets away for a little bit and I'm just going to pretend that he got away forever yeah exactly exactly (laughs) that was exactly why Jesse needed he needed to hop in the in the car with her she needed to like (gasps) open the door and then like hop on board Uh and then then he becomes the therapy dog and they heal each other you know like that's that's like right like I mean I I haven't seen the movie but I was like fingers crossed they do that in the movie yeah. like, that's an adaptation i would have insisted on you know yeah but, it's like the, the doctor sleep style spinoff yeah in the movie they actually send him upstate to a farm with lots of dead republicans so he's living oh, the okay. life and that's <laughs> Eat so, well speaking of death trust those <laughs> you don't trust those republican eating cannibal i guess he's not a cannibal but speaking of cannibals space, uh, space cowboy raymond andrew Ooh. jobert he's so creepy he's definitely i felt like he was I mean, earlier in the novel, he's legitimately terrifying to me. Like, I mean, just mm-hmm. the, the moment where he first appears is like, I literally like, it was almost like a jump scare in a book. Like, I literally had a like moment of like, eh. mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, I, as the book progresses, uh, he's definitely seems to me like a, a based on like Ed Gein, you know, Albert Fish kind of mashup. Um, and I, I don't know, I think at some point it tips over into slightly too much for me. That's like one of my only complaints about it. But I did, I did really like the role he plays in the book and he is legitimately terrifying, especially when he's, when he is more ambiguous, when it's unclear what or who he is. 
uh, I thought it was very effective. Yeah, this book is so interesting because it's got like this really gross, effective body horror, but this like also really creepy atmospheric dread. And I think Joubert kind of represents more of the dread, but he's just such, he's so fascinating because you don't know if he's real for so long. And I like, I kind of was seeing him as like, how Jesse might be afraid of men in general and how he's kind of a yes. manifestation of her like internalized fears. And then, and so that would sound like I want, didn't want him to be real. But then at the end, I loved like that moment when everybody found out that she was telling the truth and this really actually happened. It was so satisfying to say no, as much as Brandon was nice, like, fuck you, Brandon, he's real. You were wrong to not believe me. You, I'm not crazy. And I loved that aspect of his story. Yeah, we should mention yeah. he, he suffered from uh, acromegaly, which is like an enlargement mm. of like hands, arms, face. So it does sort of exaggerate some of those classically male features. And mm, I think they mentioned mm-hmm. that she says like his hands are down to his knees. So, you yeah. know, this is an actual condition, but in her mind, she's not sure if she's seeing him and he doesn't look real. You know, there's something Especially, off about him. yeah. The shadows too, like elongating how creepy, like she, I think she describes it at some point, like tentacles coming out and it's just like the way the shadows move on them. It's hard to see exactly what's going on. And when she thinks there's a chainsaw at the, at his feet, but you can't really Mm -hmm. tell because it's that darkness where your eyes just can't penetrate and see detail. I thought he was really interesting character to start off with, but yeah, I agree with, um, I think it was it Jen or was it, uh, Laura, who said he like kind of got goofy towards the end. I I, I thought it maybe it, it, it maybe is a little much. It, the necklace of it, penises, I think, was yeah. Was like, I mean, he was definitely okay. going. For yeah, the, I, I like, kind of pictured him. Know, if you guys Hulk. know the uh, Affix Twin music video for "Come to Daddy," um, there's like a screaming, yeah. <laughs> hulking person, and that's I kind of you know the weird proportions, huge mouth, um, and then you know during the trial we really find out more about him, and he seems like he's a very you know simple guy. He's a victim of abuse. King gets mm-hmm. really into the detail of some of his past crimes about raping a boy and then blinding him, oh, which I yeah. was like, you know, I could have oh, just to... done without that, I guess. Yep. But. They could have, yep. you know, they could have stuck to the Gein and not moved into the Albert Fish. That's what, because mm. uh, Albert Fish, famous child murderer, Ed, Ed Gein, famous body part collector dude um, mm-hmm. who maybe killed his brother uh, and, and a few randos, uh, but... <laughs> Yeah, I thought there there was one line that pushed it over for me, which was like, at, you know, they were going over the stuff in his in his house that they found, and you know, he had all the objects that he stole from different cabins in Maine, and it was like, and he had a huge collection of women's lingerie, like he liked to wear it or something like that, and I was like, okay, you just tipped the scales into like lurid, you know, pulp territory for me, but. Again, I'll give it to I'm I'm being hypercritical only because I was looking for things to criticize in this otherwise really good book. Um, yeah, because I'm an asshole. <laughs> well, I, I actually got a shiver there for a second, and I think that means we're approaching the pet cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. <laughs> whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. All right, so this is the cemetery where we discuss the scariest or most disturbing moments of the book. I guess one of mine was the hand peeling. Um, yeah, oh yeah. Jesse, at one point she writes, or she thinks, I'm peeling my hand, 
oh dear Jesus, I'm peeling it like an orange. And essentially mm. to escape, she cuts, the, basically degloves her hand, which is a real injury that mm-hmm. happens at times. Uh, what, what were some of the scarier moments for you? Oof. Yeah, definitely the hand. That yep. was, I had to like pause because I, for me, for horror, I love to be scared. But sometimes body horror, especially because King, I was talking to my dad about this last night, how much detail he goes and can be exasperating at other times. But at, when it's good and it's like at to the point and it gives you the entire scenario so you feel like you're actually there. I, my hand started to like actually have phantom pains just because I was like, I can't do this right now. It's too much. Mine too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like breathing shallowly. Like I had to like put it down and like breathe in through my nose. Like normal. And, and I'm, I'm pretty strong stomached when it comes to that kind of stuff. But there was something about that description. It was just like, and thinking about her being racked with all these cramps and then, you know, and like all that was kind of building psychologically on you. And then then the hand peeling came along and you were just like, Bleh! like I, it was, it really, really was hard to read. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I already, I have a scar phobia and just anything with skin. It just, it freaks me <laughs> out. And I was listening to this and I had to turn it way down and like do some deep breathing. But I was like, I'm going to listen yes. to it. I'm going to get through it because mm-hmm. the last time I read it, I skipped it. And I was trying to find a section to pull out. Um, and it goes on for like four pages. Yeah. Like, it's it's like the different stages of what it was like, which I mean, I appreciate because that's the reality of what that would be like. But it's just it's so visceral. And I think it really shows what she had to go through to mm-hmm. get herself out. And if you're looking at this as kind of a metaphor to her, like she's peeling off the denial that she's been living with for her whole life. And that is a really hard process. And it comes in stages. And it's not something you can just like rub some cream on and walk away, you know? So I appreciated that, but oh, it was so hard to read. And I knew it was coming. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things about this book that like keeps me from rereading it sometimes is because I know this thing is going to happen. Ugh. Yeah, I, I look forward to never rereading this. Um, but I I, <laughs> I, 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 I I, love that that it's like an analogy for what she's going through. And then that is the, the conflict. And when I was thinking about this book and whether, you know, I how I felt about it um I was like sometimes I just think it's too much detail it's too gratuitous but then I was like no it's not it needed to be that gratuitous it needed to to make you sit with it because that's the whole point right you know and and I think I've settled on that side of the argument within my own mind yeah within the voices in my head <laughs> I, I agree I think it it, it in a way because she is sort of in a cruciform position with her arms out kind of like Jesus on the cross and I think there is like a yeah. resurrection and, you know, the blood on the hands and the wrist. Mm. And she emerges, you know, kind of rises up as a different Jesse to save us all from our sins. Interesting. Uh, yeah. All hail Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy it. Uh, for me, I had one other. And it was when she first sees uh, Space Cowboy, because uh, I'm just going to call him that, mm-hmm. uh, in the room. And she thinks it's her father. And she just, like, gives up. There's a point where she gives up. She's like, Daddy, is it you? And then I think she says, all right, go ahead. She told the shape. Her voice was a little hoarse, but otherwise steady. It's why you came back, isn't it? So go ahead. How could I stop you anyway? And for me, I was like, she's about to, whether, I knew it was a real person in the room because I had seen the movie, but still I was like, is he, in the book, I know it's different. So I was like, is he going to rape her? And like, can you imagine being like chained to a bed and this crazy thing that you think is your dad from the dead whose body is like crossed a hundred miles or something to get to you is now about to rape you. Like that for me, like caused me to like, yeah, not jump, but it like, yeah, inwardly cringe and be afraid. And in her letter to Ruth, she even says she would have willingly 
um, had sex yeah. if it meant that he would ha- unhandcuff her. And mm-hmm. you know, that's a huge thing to say to someone. And, it, you know, it's creepy as fuck. Yeah. Well, and she says that at the beginning when she's talking about, she's like saying to herself, just let Gerald do it, just get it over with, you know? And I think that's kind of like where she was. And we didn't really talk about the dad and the characters, but like he is just so such a terrifying manipulative character yes. and i don't think mm-hmm. i have ever screamed fuck you at my at a book <laughs> so many times as when i was reading those scenes because it's oh, just oh it just it's so her. yes yeah. and i yeah, yeah. kind of gaslights her into thinking you know oh well we should tell your mother and she has to beg him not to mm-hmm. confess his crime to the mother where meanwhile he knows he's never going to tell the mother because she would kill him exactly right i, I mean like, it was just utterly appalling and, and I mean that's what I how I felt about this book and when I was trying to come up with notes for this section I was like it's not so much scenes or moments it's the collective psychological effect of this whole story it disturbed me probably more than anything I've read by King um and I think you know it was claustrophobic you have the body horror but you have the the, the psychological torture that she's been through and that her father put her through it's like the betrayal this betrayal of trust, just like with the dog, like, you know, you know, you, you find something on the side of the road and you're like, I'm going to love you and take care of you. And then immediately you're like, fuck you, I'm going to abandon you into the woods. And it's like, it's exactly mm-hmm. that same betrayal of trust of a parent doing this to their child. It's like, to me, it's the utter taboo. It's the the most awful thing you can do to someone um, is to betray someone that you're taking care of in that way. It's And that is so frightening. And the way that it plays out in this book is just, it found very disturbing, um, but mm-hmm. good, but disturbing. Yeah, because it's reality. That's what happens to a lot of people. And like, you grow up thinking it's your fault and the way that he twisted that. And I think it's so interesting that the way King writes it is the worst thing that happened was his manipulation, not the actual assault. And not to say that the assault wasn't bad, but that how that was handled afterwards. And if she had been able to get what she needed to recover, her life probably would have been completely different. And it's it, the way that, like, King goes into unraveling this like this this thing that's for her is a guilt trip Mm -hmm. uh the fact it's like peeling at layers of the trauma and as she's kind of understanding what really for her was the most I mean like she said like the the actual assault was terrible but for her as she's starting to realize what really was how he manipulated her and at one point as you get closer toward the end and I'm skip. I'll have to skip back to this for when we do. I think it's um, the best parts um, for what we our best quotes. But it was just kind of her realization that he can look her in the eye when he was lying. Mm-hmm. But as soon as he went to apologize and talk about not even apologize to talk about what he did was wrong, he couldn't stare her in the face. I have that quote up. It's in chapter twenty two in, in my edition. Um, and this is, he's like, he did all that to manipulate her. And then he sort of offers a sham apology. Um, he had looked away when he said that she remembered all the time had been deliberately driving her into hysterics of guilt and fear and impending doom. All the time he had been making sure she would never say anything by threatening to tell everything. He had looked right at her. When he offered that last apology, however, his gaze had shifted to the crayon designs on the sheets, which divided the room. This memory filled her with something that felt simultaneously like grief and rage. He had been able to face her with his lies. It was the truth which had finally caused him to look away. Mm. Yep. <laughs> yep. 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 <laughs> it makes me so mm. mad. Yes. <laughs> I know. It's yeah. like, it's, it's so awful. It's so awful. I mean, yeah, I think that that's, I had that in my, also in my like best writing moments from the mm. book, but I think it's kind of sums up what we're all saying about 
what disturbed us there. Yeah. One thing that disturbed me is I'm a itchy person, and if there's a <laughs> itch that I can't scratch, it drives me crazy. You know, I would give in to torture very quickly if I was restrained. <laughs> and the idea of having your hands, you know, just completely useless, stuck on the bed, you know, swelling at the wrist. And we should know, too, she, she thinks ahead because she at one point she was going to break her own wrist and try to rip them out. But then she mm-hmm. does realize, no, that'll just cause them to swell. I'll still be trapped here and I'll have broken wrist, which is just mm-hmm. such a horrible rationalization to have to go through. Um, but were there any yeah. other scary moments that come to mind? I had a couple. Yeah, um, I think one of my the scariest moment, I think, for me was um, it's on page 30 and it's in the the very first assault where Gerald before Gerald dies. And um, it's when she's realizing that he knows what he's doing and um, says she took a closer look at him and saw a terrible thing. He knew he knew she wasn't kidding about not wanting to go on with it. He knew, but he had chosen not to know he knew, which is just so for anyone who is a survivor of assault, like just to kind of peer behind and see like the menace behind that, because I think there's you can easily tell yourself like, they they it was a misunderstanding and kind of minimize it but like they're just the level of knowing that this person knows and is treating you like an object was just it chilled me to think about that and like to picture such a gross person doing that and just the look I could imagine the look in his eye and it chilled me safety words kids safe words that's what we're yeah trying to <laughs> yes. get at yeah it was another betrayal of trust and it it was really well handled because he also it what was terrifying for me too was that he also knew that she wasn't it she was gonna let it happen or he assumed that she was gonna let it happen and that after it happened she was just gonna like bury it under the rug because no one's gonna believe her she doesn't have the power and i felt that on such a real scale with my own past and seeing that like, yeah, the the power that you think you have when you try to use your own voice to speak up and tell someone no, and they deny you that full on and pretend and then try to trick you into believing that like you're silly or like you're, you're just acting up, but you really want this, you know, that kind Mm -hmm. of idea. Like for me, I had to read through the first part quickly and kind of get through the book. And then I had to go back and read the beginning slowly because it was just very triggering and scary for me. Yeah, me too. And on the next page, um, the part where she's talking, she's seeing herself like testifying about it, I think is kind of going along with that. She saw herself telling a judge who looked like the late Harry Reasoner that, yes, it was true she had accompanied Gerald to the summer house of her own free will. Yes, she had allowed him to tether her to the bedpost with two sets of Creed handcuffs, also of her own free will. And yes, as a matter of fact, they had played such games before, although never at the place on the lake. And I think that's just exactly why so many women don't report assault. Absolutely. I think that, I mean, it really was giving me, you know, flashbacks to the fucking Kavanaugh hearings, you know, and Uh and just thinking about how each thing is going to be picked apart in a public spectacle. And I I mean, I think it's so relevant to the conversation happening right now. Um, And yeah, it was absolutely, it was very triggering and very disturbing and, and, and accurately captured that thought process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I guess does kind of what you were saying earlier. Um, It it does speak to King's writing um, and that he was, you know, for a book from 1992, you know, a lot of these issues are kind of only just being discussed in public spaces now. Um, so he was mm-hmm. maybe a little bit ahead of the time with some of this stuff. Uh, are there any other uh, scary moments that you had, Jen? I had a couple more just about the creepy space cowboy. Um, the one on page 356 of the Signet version, um, <clears throat> I had 
The wind gusted, the door banged, and somewhere closer by, a board creaked stealthily the way boards do when someone who is trying to be quiet treads lightly upon them. It's come back, her mind whispered. It was all the voices now. They had intertwined in a braid. That's what the dog smells. That's what you smell. And Jesse, that's what made the board creak. That thing that was here last night has come back for you. And it just is so creepy and for this book there's so many different levels of like terror and horror and it just it speaks like because this is a completely different type of scary than what we were just talking about but it's still Mm -hmm. really effective Mm -hmm. I found that this as somebody who's has really really bad anxiety and my own issues with trauma like I felt like this captured that mindset so well I remember like you know I mean some of my anxiety has always taken this sort of diffuse form of like impending doom like just for an example one of my worst fears is a global disease pandemic (laughs) Um, but you know that sense of like death approaching um and like the first time I watched the seventh seal I had a panic attack and this made me think of like the specter of death from the seventh seal and like um the Bergman movie and and you know and it just it and the way that it continues to haunt her even after she's out of the house and she's like there's this haunted house in my mind that is just waiting for me to walk back in and when I do it like the doors lock behind me um I mean that is such an accurate depiction of what anxiety is and what you know and how you can spiral and spiral into this fear whether it's incited by a traumatic incident or incited by generalized anxiety um I thought that was like, I mean, it really put me in that headspace. So maybe not the best book for me to be reading psychologically right now, but <laughs> but effective. Uh, and doesn't she say at one point, because she hears the creak and then she hasn't even ventured out of the bedroom yet. And she's like the safety, there's like kind of a safety to the bedroom because she can see and know and even that she's been in there. But like the hallway is this whole other space. And I've been like mm-hmm. that too, as well, with anxiety of thinking like, yeah, I need to get from point A to B. I definitely need to, but I have to walk through this creepy alleyway or creepy hallway. And you kind of question your your sanity because you're like, I can stay here mm-hmm. and just wait it out or I can like brave it and hope for the best, but have an unknown. Well, and if you look at like what it's like to leave an abusive uh, relationship, I think that's kind of a kind of direct metaphor to that, too, because it's like she has this bit of safety right now and she knows she can't like stay there. She knows if she stays in this handcuff, she's going to die. And but she's safe in that moment. And I think like the the steps that it would take to get out, like you are entering the unknown and it's probably going to hurt a lot. And to have to go through that pain to get to something better on the other side, I think is something a lot of survivors deal with. But I think it's really kind of clearly captured in that because that room is safe. It's what she knows. It's, it's a very, very anxious book, too, especially because yeah. about 90% of it plays out in her mind, right? There's not a whole lot mm-hmm. of external things going on other than there's this ticking clock of her body is going to die if she does not escape these handcuffs, um, which is interesting because, like I mentioned earlier, I'd seen the film first, and I think it actually works really well as a film. Uh, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. I think this book maybe would serve better as a short story, Um you know, I thought there was a lot of kind of repetition, but I also understand the sense of dread and anxiousness that King was going for. And it definitely was one of those where I had to step away every now and then and just say, oh my God, this, you know, (laughs) this is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly the argument that I kept having with myself while reading it. I'm like, why are we going over this again? But then I'm like, no, it has a really powerful dramatic effect of, of putting you in, in the mindset that she's in. And, you know, and so as much as it's an unpleasant read, this is one where I felt like, I'm, I'm normally very critical of King and his um, 
overuse of detail and I'm like man you could have really just edited out like 30 percent of the words you know yeah but but this was a case where I was like I don't know maybe it's doing something because it's really effective and disturbing um I don't know I had like I said I had mixed feelings on that one Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Speaking of pleasant reads, that brings us (laughs) to the word processor of the god. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here and you hear me typing, whether you don't hear me typing, what the, the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? So, uh, I believe Aisha had some good quotes. Uh, what are some of your favorite passages from the book? Uh, so, if I go into... God, I forgot to say what kind of, what version of the book I had. Uh, earlier now that I think about it for me it's when she is what talking about like adult emotions Um, and she mentions this like a few times throughout the book but if I go to page 159 of my version which is the 1992 actually the signet version as well um, where was it she's talking about uh, how confronting the past and so she she opens her mouth to deny that, to tell Ruth she's as guilty of wild overdramatization as Nora, who kept shoving her towards doors she didn't want to open, who kept assuring her that the present can be improved by examining the past, as if one could improve the taste of today's dinner by slathering it with the maggoty remains of yesterday's. And I think a lot of us who, when we have to, I think, uh, was it Jen said earlier when you're confronting like a lot of the past and you have to kind of come back and revisit it but you don't really want to go through all of that and people a lot of times tell you when you're supposed to be getting over trauma you should like look forward to the future and you know it was in the past and you just have to move forward and look towards everything that's great you know there yes you have to move on but at the same time like you have to confront that disgusting maggoty dinner Mm-hmm. Um, and, and take a bite, even though it's acrid and disgusting. So I really like that part. Yeah. Someone else wants to go live, find my other one. <laughs> I had one about, I had a couple, because I just love this book. Um, mm-hmm. Spoiler for my rankings. but um, And it's about when she's talking about um, the day that her brother goosed her at the party. Um, and she's saying um, it had been her fear, fear that if she didn't do something with that ugly green froth of anger and embarrassment, it would put out the sun, cause her to explode. 
The truth first encountered on that day was this. There was a well inside her. The water in that well was poisoned. And when he goosed her, William had sent a bucket down there, one which had come up filled with scum and squirming gluck. She had hated him for that, and she supposed it was really her hate that had caused her to strike out. That deep stuff had scared her. Now, all these years later, she was discovering it still did, but it still infuriated her as well. And I think I love the imagery of the well there and like thinking about like the the repressed memories. I have some specific memories that I'm like have repressed for a long time and I'm in the process of kind of digging them up. And I use like similar imagery in my head. Um, mine is not a well, but it's like an ocean. And I think about like all of the, the squirmy stuff like swirling around in the deeper water. And like if I stick my toe in, it's OK. But if I stick my foot in, like it's going to suck me in and then the other image that I have is like it's from the movie Sunshine and it's just like being swallowed by the sun and it's like if you allow yourself to dip too deep into that well you'll never be able to get out and I loved how he like it, that was one of the points where I was like oh you're in my head like you know how I'm how I'm processing all of this yeah I as, as <laughs> I sometimes feel like because I have I have traumatic I have a, a trauma issue that I'm dealing with too it's different from what's in this book but you know, it's the same feeling where you, sometimes you feel like you're just like a, a tentacle is coming up from the water and grabbing you and like and like almost forcing your head into the surface and making you rewatch the memories like they're playing out on the surface of the water. Like it like it's like a movie you can't stop watching. And that's kind of the image that always pops into my head. Uh, and so I found again, I had those that same passage flagged as as being very effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually had uh some of those quotes as well. Um, and I have a similar one too, where this is Jesse. Uh, she felt a swollen green sack of poison pulsing somewhere inside her, bitter stuff, mm. hateful as hemlock. She was afraid that if that sack burst, she would choke on her own frustrated rage. Ugh, mm. real insight into her, but it, it does seem like, yeah, there, there's something just pulsing beneath her. And she knows that she has this venom inside her because she's acted out, you know, like when her brother goosed her, and she responded mm-hmm. by just like what she punched him right in the face. Um, you know, she she knows that she has this and it's not really her brother that she's mad at. It was more her father. But mm-hmm. he kind of triggered that um, trauma for her. I think it was the next day after the eclipse. It was her brother's birthday. Was, right. Well, I thought it was like two years later. Was, a couple something. Years later. Years was it? OK. Later. I remember her brother yeah. was turning, I think, nine. Nine um, or yeah, yeah, n- uh, nine. Like the number of innings in a baseball game. Which <laughs> King <laughs> oh, always right. gets that number in. Nine. Yep, <laughs> number nine. Uh, you know, it, yeah. She said because she said it was like two years later because she realizes for like the two years between the eclipse and punching her brother, she had all those voices in her head all the time, and it wasn't until she punched the brother that she was able to silence them for a time. And it's interesting, like you know, that the the catalyst for the actual action in this story is her kicking her shitty husband in the balls and stomach and then you know and again she's she's lashing out i think you know reasonably at, at, at gerald but it was as she realizes at some point in the book an extension of that same rage at her father yeah um, well and there's this the book like one of the classic books about ptsd and trauma is the body keeps the score and um, i have like, that one. <laughs> oh, do you yeah, yeah like my yeah. therapist is always asking me like where do you feel this in your body and like how is your body reacting and that's like I, th- I think what we see because when you're dealing with these traumatic things like you have to like to protect your mind when you're a kid you have to like 
close it off and so that reaction like pumpkin pumpkin never got to like hit her dad so she, that like reaction is stored in her and so then like when she's finally able to unleash it that's when she can um, she can kind of release a lot of those emotions and I find like every every one of the time like all of the stuff is still stored in me and I'll find it like shooting out at people sometimes especially when I'm feeling like particularly like activated and it's it's not a reflection of them it's just like that has to get out somehow and I loved like that I think that's a really clear um description of what it feels like to actually be triggered and I had that passage pulled up the one about the voices in her head because that like I that is exactly what it feels like in your head you know when you're like you hear all of these voices some were kind and supportive but most were the voices of people who were afraid people who were confused people who thought Jesse was a worthless little baggage who deserved every bad thing that happened to her and who would have to pay double for every good thing and I think you can see that with like she's just grown up in this world of shame and fear and that's just the voices that's the kind of voices that you're going to hear in your head body keeps yeah. the score that's a great title yeah it's a great yeah. it's Check a great book it's a great book yeah I, <laughs> aisha did you find any of the other passages that you really enjoyed oh yeah uh so one of them was so one of the voices she had was she called it the ufo ufo voice and there's a point i think it's page 197 for me uh where she's talking about adult emotions and I like the perspective, the child perspective of reflecting on uh, what it's like to be an adult. And at the point she's saying how I think Jessie was watching her mother exhibit two different emotions as she's talking with her husband of both being like angry, but also like amused. And like she couldn't understand how adults could have two different things at the same time. So she says, her mother sounded angrily amused, a combination that made Jessie's head spin. It seemed to her that only adults could combine emotions in so many daffy ways. If feelings were food, adult feelings would be things like chocolate-covered steak, mashed potatoes with pineapple bits, special K with chili powder sprinkled on instead of sugar. Jessie thought that being an adult seemed more like a punishment than a reward. And we were talking earlier about like having those voices in your head and when you're kind of trying to like struggle through things and you're feeling 17 different things at one time and someone asks you, how are you? And sometimes we, this is something I'm trying to struggle with not saying just like, oh, I'm good or I'm okay because mm -hmm. there's so much going on. And to be, if we're truthful about how conflicting our emotions can be and like being able to like give actual words to them instead of just like squishing it all under one box of fine or okay, uh, we can kind of go through a lot of like our day with understanding and reflecting and and interacting with other people and also processing our own either past or trauma or whatever we're going through it doesn't necessarily have to be trauma it could just be like getting through something that's horrible at that time so i really liked how king did the perspective of a child trying to understand and kind of not dilute but like break down to the simplest terms what it's like to be an adult Mm-hmm. And to deal with all of those competing voices. Yeah. And I found one of the things that's helped me is to like when you can use a word and activate the part of your brain that processes language, it takes that charge out of the emotion. And so sometimes what I would do is that when I'm feeling a lot of emotions is just try to find a word that fits, even if it's just in my head. And I think that's that's a powerful way to show that. For sure. I think and then yeah. Yeah, I have to write things down. I just have to like sit mm -hmm. and when I get overwhelmed, just write, write it down because there is the power in the word. 
Um, I, ha I have one other, I have one quote that's a little on the long side, but not terribly long. That is kind of, again, it's, it's all of these are dealing with Jesse sort of having these realizations about emotion. Um, in mine, it's in chapter nine and it's during that women's support meeting in college. Um, and I think that this is also like a really excellent description of when depression and anxiety kind of hit, um, just in general. So, um, that was when the carnival ended for Jesse Mahout. Ended? No, that wasn't right. It was as if she had been afforded a momentary glimpse behind the carnival, had been allowed to see the gray and empty fields of autumn that were the real truth. Nothing but empty cigarette wrappers and used condoms and a few cheap broken prizes caught in the tall grass, waiting to either blow away or be covered by the winter snows. She saw that silent, stupid, sterile world waiting beyond the thin layer of patched canvas which separated it from the razzle-dazzle brightness of the midway, the patter of the hucksters, and the glimmer-glamour of the rides, and it terrified her. To think that only this lay ahead of her, only this and nothing more, was awful. To think that it lay behind her as well and perfectly hidden by the patched and tawdry canvas of her own doctored memories was insupportable. Yeah, I just really thought that was like... <sighs> very very vivid and such a great analogy and just really hit me hard and it was at this very sort of dramatic moment in the in the book so well yeah. done king <laughs> well done i've had those conversations with my therapist like is this ever gonna end is this mm -hmm. gonna get better and i actually have yeah. one more can i read one oh, yeah, more of course, i think of course. it kind of pairs with that and it's my favorite thing in the book and it actually made me cry a little bit when i was reading it and it's on page 444 and in, in the signet and it's at the end of her letter to ruth and she says um, and I want to tell you something else, something I'm really starting to believe. I'm going to be okay. Not today, not tomorrow, and not next week, but eventually. As okay as we mortals are privileged to get anyway. It's good to know that. Good to know that survival is still an option and that sometimes it even feels good. That sometimes it actually feels like victory. And I thought that I loved ending I on loved. that note. You know. I love that so much too. I thought it was such a great way to end it. And now I'm mm -hmm. feeling choked up, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. I thought, I thought that was, I mean, I really thought that was awesome. It's yeah. A good yeah. Cause it's like, it seems like this overwhelming mountain that you have to climb sometimes to try to dig things out. And it seems like, like Aisha, what you're talking about, about if I can just stay in this bedroom, I'm safe right now. And I don't have to deal with this and I can just get by and I can keep listening to the good wife. But like what, and it is really hard to start digging everything up, but it's not, it has not been as hard as I thought it was going to be. And that's what I always tell everybody when they're, when I'm talking about therapy, like it's really fucking hard, but it's not as hard as I thought it was going to be and it's passable like you can do it and so I loved that he ended on that note that's in a hopeful note in such a dark book yeah there are a lot more powerful quotes than I recall um but now I feel like I need to go back almost and reread some of these I think he just slips in a lot of good things that you upon like reflecting become more important or say more even if it's just like a simple sentence or what it there's a lot that's buried within each or each part of this book, which mm -hmm. I really liked about it. Yeah, it's saying a lot, and it's hard to reread. But I caught a lot of that earlier on because I knew what was going to happen at the end. I'm glad we got so many good quotes in because we're slicing <laughs> off a piece of pound cake. Ooh! After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mama. So this is a section where we kind of go into some of the lame sex bathroom passage stuff that King puts in. This book's a little more serious. Usually these are kind of humorous. <laughs> so there definitely were some that jumped at me. But it, like we said, the tone of the book is a very 
straightforward, serious book, so there's not as much silliness. Um, yeah. But one quote that I had to put in where I could just see King at his typewriter, uh, and I'm going to do a voice for this one, so pardon me. <laughs> yes, sir, boys. Yuck, yuck, yuck. You ain't really had pussy till you had pussy that's jumping around underneath you like a hen on a hot griddle. Ooh, when did that happen? Yeah. I don't remember I don't even that. Remember that? I think maybe uh, we all blocked. We it blocked out. it. <laughs> I don't remember it now that you said it, but I'm like, oh. yeah, the hot griddle. I, I think it's it's when Gerald's mounting her, um, and she's oh. starting to struggle, oh. and she's thinking mm. this is what mm. must be going on. Oh so. yeah, pussy on a hot. Oh, griddle. I do remember that now. Mm, yeah, Can you just, just see Roland just... LeBay saying that with his gross back brace? Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying not to. Yeah, yeah, some of these are, oh uh, I mean, do you guys have any other ones that jumped out to you? I have a uh, couple. I, I have several. <laughs> okay. We all do. Yeah. There, but there was one that I, like, I don't want to read it because it's happening during the time on the deck with her father, and it just feels, like, so exploitative. But talking about the squeaky wheel getting the grease. Was That's just, what I have. Oh, That's the yeah. one that I have, too. Oh. Well, that- too. Too literal. <laughs> Ex- exploitative is exactly the word because that this is where I struggled with it. I said, um, you know, it's like I was saying before, like we have to go in and revisit these horrible details because that's kind of the whole point of the book. But then mm-hmm. occasionally I feel like he pushed it just a little too far. And, and, and I know that Jesse is kind of like a sardonic character. Like she talks about how she has to joke about things to deal with it. And Lord knows I'm the same way. But there was sometimes where I was just like with the knowledge that King was writing it. I was like, did you have to say... I guess the squeaky wheel does get the grease. Like that is just fucking disgusting. Like uh-huh. goddamn it, yeah, and yeah. He like, did not drop it. He kept bringing it up. I know. It's like yeah. okay, we get it, we get it. Yeah. So that's where I another moment where I was struggling because normally I'm like, oh, this is just King being a weird sex guy or talking about <laughs> farts or something. But like, th- there were these moments in the book where I wasn't really sure where to land, but I hated them. <laughs> yeah. For sure, I had uh, throat babies. Ooh. That yeah. was, uh, I think she's like <laughs> revisiting what a grammar school or a friend had once said, and it was Karen, and we all know Karen's. <laughs> Karen. Karen. Uh, <laughs> she was like telling her not to ever let a boy put his tongue in her mouth because it could start a baby in her throat. Karen mm-hmm. said it sometimes happened that way, but that a woman who had to vomit her baby to get it out almost always died, and usually the baby died too. I ain't ever going to let a boy French kiss me, Karen said. I might let one feel me on top if he really loved if I really loved him, but I don't ever want a baby in my throat. How would you eat? <laughs> Ooh, how indeed. As, I was just like, really? Mm, yeah. Okay. It's an interesting like like framing that a child would use because I remember like hearing that it's through your belly button, but I'd never heard it that yeah. way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I could see getting locked in on that as a child and then like mm-hmm. having nightmares about it. Yeah, not that I was an anxious child. I, I definitely was not. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was raised Catholic, so I still don't really know how it works. But oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're well, waiting till marriage. <laughs> Saving it. I want to give the girl that I love a throat baby. So oh, yeah. yeah, how romantic. Well, he just comes down and bless you, and then the baby appears. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was actually told. In your throat. Little side note: I was told by my parents because we never discussed sex because of the you know Catholic thing. But it was when you get married, you pray, and then God randomly chooses how many children you have. So I thought that for a Ooh. long time, but interesting science. Now I know um, one other <laughs> line that I want to put speaking of throats. Um, this is what she, don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> speaking of throats, great segue. Um, this oh is, no. This is uh, when she's on, she's writing about the trial um, dealing with the space cowboy. 
I would have let him put his cock, the cock he stuck down the rotting throats of dead men, mm. into me. If only he would have promised me I didn't have to die the dog's death of muscle cramps and convulsions that were waiting for me. If only he would have promised to set me free. Yeah. So, yeah. Laura mentioned, uh, was it Albert Fish, too, who was, mm-hmm. was a necromaniac and would feast on like the buttockses of children. Um, and the Space Cowboy definitely has some of those qualities. I think they say he was, what, cutting the noses and sex organs off of corpses at the morgue, mm-hmm. making the penis necklace, and having sex with the heads. So I thought that was a particularly gross <laughs> passage, but... Ooh. Yes, I agree. Yeah. We're all in agreement. We're all just like, yes. Just yes. served by it. It's, it's like that scene at the, the beginning of High Tension. Yes. Oh, Lord. I definitely thought one tagline that stuck with me, and it was just a short and simple phrase on a com- that kind of like introduces what's going to be the story that's going to be told for Jesse, but it's earlier on and. They say vice is nice, but incest is best. Mm. And I was like, to just play off of that, I was like, it just, but it felt like in my head, I could imagine like some sort of commercial and there's like this happy little wife and family and husband, but then you have this like dirty little secret going on in the background. It just kind of like turned my stomach reading that. That it reminds me of um, in Natural Born Killers, like the scenes with Rodney oh, Dangerfield as the dad and Jennifer Jason, and it's like supposed to be like a '50s, like Leave It to Beaver sitcom, but he's like pinching her butt or whatever. And like, yeah, that's that's exactly what I, just I popped just remember in my there, head. there's a laugh track when he goes, "Bend over, you stupid bitch," and it's like, "Ha ha ha ha!" Right. It's such a weird yeah, it's movie. A, <laughs> it's I love that movie, and I love. I mean, I think that 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 sequence is very effective for a similar reason. That's where a lot of the stuff again in this book gets into like. I don't know if I wouldn't classify it as as gross or uncomfortable bad or gross and uncomfortable good, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. a good with air quotes, you know, I should say effective. Um, yeah. I, str- I really struggled with that. Yeah, I, I think effective is a good word because if they, you know, King pulled punches here, these wouldn't, you couldn't tell this story by, you know, pun intended, but tying a hand behind your back, right? You had to come right. out and just say it and <laughs> deal with this for a very, you know, I would say mature subject matter needs mature writing and it, you know he definitely nails it with a lot of these not necessarily these pound cake passages but the majority <laughs> right. of the book that's where it, it's like he's swinging hard and occasionally he misses but for the most mm-hmm. part he he handles it pretty well but there are these moments where it was like eh, okay right yeah i had deep sea diving with the long white pole out, which and I don't remember the context of when that happened but that was one where I thought that's just kind of I could have lived without that phrase being in my head but it doesn't necessarily <laughs> feel like it's like ripping me apart the way the squeaky the squeaky wheel one does I didn't feel like it was so exploitative but you know but yeah I mean that is something that Gerald would say you know and so I think that's what you were talking about Dan that's like it's effective and if he like kind of had coddled the language a little bit I think it would have been tempting for us to not be as much on Jesse's side you know oh completely yeah it's you know because I was trying to find some sort of sympathy for Gerald because the guy did die and was being eaten by a dog but there just really was no space for it he just seemed like such an awful guy right Right. And I think that's kind of going to the way that I love the way this story is framed. It's like it starts when they put the cuffs on her. And so everything we see is from her perspective. And I mean, I don't think she's an unreliable narrator once she actually starts to confront things. But it's just interesting that we're seeing all of these characters, except briefly Gerald, through her experience of them. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, it, I was gonna say yeah go with, ahead. With, with all the characters in her head because it, it would be easy to write her off as an unreliable narrator, right? Because she's mm-hmm. channeling these inner voices, but nothing she says is not accurate. Right? It, it, even the fact that they verify at the end, um, because you know Brand, Brandon helped her concoct the story of what happened to sort of save face for mm-hmm. Gerald and the law firm, I think. But you know the fact that when she t- was tosses the ring and then they eventually find the ring and. You know, they were like, oh, maybe one of the cops swiped it at the crime scene or, you know, Mm -hmm. it just has a way of disappearing. But it it really, you know, justified everything that was going on in her head. Yeah. And I was going to say, I think that was like Jen said something like that earlier, like how that, you know, as as silly potentially as the character of of Jobert got toward the end, um, it was really necessary and gratifying to have her story you know supported by that by by that revelation like without Mm -hmm. it you could you could be we could be sitting here arguing whether or not she really experienced any of this but king did make a choice to say nope this shit did happen it is Mm kind of like believe women but you know like i mean it but i think that that's 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 good you know i i think i've now just been completely sold on the ending of this book and my rating just went up by half a clown (laughs) i feel like that you said that like support women i'm like damn because it's like they should just be believed without even having to have the support of an actual serial serial killer out there you know what i mean yeah well every time i have to go identify a serial killer to get anyone to believe (laughs) exactly serial killers are out there for that Right, yeah. but I Those but I think it, it is good though that King, you know, for especially the time period this was written, the fact that yeah, it, it would have been a completely different book if she had just imagined some of these things, and it would have just compromised everything we had been through with her trauma and recovery. Um, so you know, I'll give credit to Stephen King there. Are there any other uh, passages that jump out as being especially gross or bathroom humor? <laughs> I guess one for me is um, whenever. <laughs> Any male author describes a woman going through puberty. I was just like, wait for it, wait for it. Budding mm-hmm. breast, mm-hmm. budding breast, made another appearance in yep. the Stephen King universe. Yeah, that's not how mine happened. I don't think. No, I don't believe there was budding. <laughs> right. No budding. I just liked to go around telling people that I was on my menarche. Oh. <laughs> sorry, I'm no. sorry for saying that. Because <laughs> that's exactly what it's like, right? And it's like blue liquid, and yeah. And then yeah, you're yeah exactly. The, when the blue liquid squirts out for the first time, you know you're a woman. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> it's a magical day. <laughs> I thought the title of the lipstick called Peppermint Yum Yum oh, yeah. just grossed me out it. throughout. And I was, but I thought that was one of the things that I did think was effective because it was such like an innocent phrase, except in the context of this story. It's so like we know how he's viewing that, you know, we know how he's seeing her and it's just a corruption of what should be a really innocent thing. Although yum yum, I don't ever. I will call never look at the same. <laughs> exactly, I know, yeah. it, it's disgusting. It, it, if it was called, if it was made in the two, early two thousands, it would have called uh, peppermint nom nom. Mm. Uh, but I'm <laughs> uh-huh. sorry, no, I agree. It's really good attention. It's <laughs> sorry. It's it's just really good attention to detail. Like he didn't need to include that detail, but that's like a good authorial flourish that really um, seals the deal in a, in a bad mm. way. You know? Yeah. Anything else that jumps out? Or are we ready to? I did. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, no. Let's relish in this. I just thought care. about it now. Uh, I don't. Well, it was kind of the what it implied. So it was when she's talking or revisiting actually what happened to her with her father, and she goes over to him while he's like uh, uh, melting or putting together pieces of glass so that it can watch the eclipse, and she goes out and there's just the uh, 
there's a point where he says, like, you know, you have to be careful. We can only look at a short the eclipse through these glasses for a short time because you can burn your redness without even knowing. And there's a point where she says, the idea of that is so gross, having your eyes burned out without even knowing. And I was like, the, the, the foreshadowing of that thought, like, both disgusted me because I, I felt everything at that time. Like, her sense of dread, there's an alarm system going off. But also, and I guess this isn't so much pound cake as more of like well-written piece now that I think about it. <laughs> but for me, I had a lot of emotions going off with that one thought she had, that innocent thought that ended up being like endued with so much other shit that was about to go down. Her eyes being burned. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess if you're looking at like actually facing trauma, that's kind of like. That's what I was. Yeah. Yeah. She's about to get mm-hmm. burned for real. Like with her father yeah Yeah. exactly Mm -hmm. yeah see the image of that eclipse for the rest of her life was i think a line in there like she would be seeing it and like an after image for the rest of her life and yeah and she didn't even know it was about to happen to her didn't Mm -hmm. realize it perhaps that's why our uh the leader of the free world stared into the eclipse recently to uh (laughs) confront his father who we know is a great man this is pound cake yeah. so it's okay but we're, we're gonna <laughs> yeah. we'll move on quickly yeah. but but yeah i think yeah, we covered most good. of it and, you know like we said it's not as silly as some of his other novels so it is kind of hard to do yeah. the lame jokes there you know there's occasional phrases that pop up where it'll be like one for me none for you <laughs> you know like these little mm-hmm. i don't know kingisms but i think we've had enough pound cake though right let's yeah. uh put that back in the fridge <laughs> for a lifetime yeah we need to go <laughs> Move on to a sillier book next time. But <laughs> but actually, I think, uh, speaking of other books, that's a perfect segue into King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. So this is King's Dominion, and this is where we sort of talk about the references to other Stephen King works. I'll start with one because I'm obsessed with the Dark Tower, sort of the resident expert Dark Tower head. <laughs> Um, there's one line where in the very beginning where Gerald is approaching her and Jesse says he hooked his thumbs into the waistband of his underpants like some absurd gunslinger. Mm. Oh, I can't believe I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely read over that. He's the, uh, the anti, um, oh, Ro- he's the anti Roland. Yeah. <laughs> he's like the gas. Oh, Roland would be, yeah. Roland would be disgusted by him. I feel like he would just see. <laughs> Roland would kill his ass. Gerald's just enough mm-hmm. overweight too that Roland would just like look down on him with scorn. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> then uh, I have one that oh, was similar ahead. to that um, that said um, she had just run as fast. I'm sorry, it's on page 110 in the Signet. She had just run as fast as her legs could carry her. Jesse Mayhew Burlingame, also known as the Amazing Gingerbread Girl, which is one of the stories, and I think it's just after sunset. About a woman, like, running away from trauma. Well, speaking of the sun, uh, this actually takes place during the eclipse. And Dolores Claiborne takes place during the Mm -hmm. same eclipse, which is also kind of lifted up as the companion piece to this book. Because it's Mm -hmm. sort of a strong feminist perspective from King. Yeah, I have the, um, I think in my edition, there's, like, parallel illustrations at the very beginning that if you put them together, they would interweave, or they would lock together into form a one picture. Oh, that's so cool. I need to check those out Mm -hmm. online. Yeah, really I, cool. I think I, I thunk the uh, I thunk. Did I just? Say I thunk? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm so enjoy. sorry. I need to recover from that. Uh, the, the, there's those scenes where she thinks she sees a woman 
with like graying hair next to a slip and then there's like a ufo voice that's something like oh he's down the well and i think that mm-hmm. those are dolores claiborne references i, yeah. I, I kind of like I, I it's been a long time since i read or watched the movie but i was like wait oh and then i looked up online and i was like yep anyway mm-hmm. that's my cool story well, in, in Dolores Claiborne, there's a moment where she sees Jesse, too, and she has that same, mm. like, vision during the eclipse, so it's really cool. Okay. And if you look at Dolores Claiborne, the story of that, it's, um, like, she would, Jesse would be, like, the grown-up version of Dolores's daughter, and so I like the way that kind of intertwines. And there's a section, like, later, and I didn't flag it, but it's um, where she's talking about, like, running through the blackberries and her father wanting something from her, and I think, like, if you, this is, like, the the sequel this would be like the doctor sleep of like the shining to dolores claiborne you know like what happens when the daughter grows up got it yeah that's it's, i thought it was cool because it was it added even without knowing the dolores claiborne element it added this real element of again like an eerie mystery to it like mm-hmm. she's seeing something beyond the veil of normality and it and it was it was it was a nice little flourish yeah have you guys read dolores claiborne yeah i know no, you said I'm... you read it a long time ago like when I was a kid, because I my grandma looked like Kathy Bates, so I was obsessed with Kathy Bates, uh, and I watched the movie a bunch of times. And I, but again, I read it when I was like way too young, and I don't really remember it very well. Yeah, I definitely haven't read it. So for me, the I could in tune that this was something important, but I had and I know that there's a connection between these two books, but I had no idea like that was who that potentially was. Yeah, I had also read it years ago. Um, it just for some reason it didn't really stick with me, but I'm trying to go back and reread. Uh, all the King books, so that'll definitely be on mm. the short list, especially after reading this. That's one this, that too. I go back to a lot. I like it a lot. Do you and like it, it better really than this nicely book? with Gerald's game? I don't like it better than this one, but I like it. I mean, almost as much. And it's interesting. Like I listen to the audiobook of it a lot, and it's told through first person, and it's just it's really interesting. If you like Gerald's game, you'll like Dolores Claiborne. <laughs> oh, what a recommendation! Put that on the book cover. Girl, <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite as much of a hard read as this one was. I think it's interesting, too, now that I'm thinking about it, like, so this other book that's paired to it, it has the female uh, lead name as the title, but with Gerald's Game, and I think, I can't remember who said this earlier, where how in the beginning, Jessie only describes herself as someone in relation to someone else, Mm -hmm. and the book does not carry her name, so I, I wonder if that was an intentional choice by King to, like remove her name from the title mm. or keep or not put her there and i'm just thinking this now as we're thinking, talking about um cross comparisons between from what i'm listening to you guys talk about with dolores that's interesting yeah, i like that it's really yeah. interesting yeah that's Especially a good because point dolores it's not often is... go ahead yeah oh go ahead oh sorry Mid- midwest standoff again but uh, <laughs> midwest this damn virus um but no i was gonna say it's not often you have like a titular character this one being gerald that is killed off so early in a book and it is interesting mm-hmm. that, yeah, even the book, she kind of defines herself by her husband's name, um, you know, before kind of asserting herself and eventually becoming her own person. But I, I had not really thought about that. Oh, yeah, everything is just in relation to other people, you know, starting with her father and even the characters in her head. Mm-hmm. But there's this point at the end where she, I think she's in the courtroom and it's one that loved it. And she's saying her days of doing things because a man told her to were over. And it's just a throwaway, but I loved yes. it. <laughs> I loved that line too. I, mm-hmm. I, I highlighted it, but then I was like, it's too short to call out in good mm-hmm. writing. But I was just like, I did a little like, yeah, got, got, got their ass like hand mm-hmm. gesture when I read it. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess I one other one, speaking of Kathy Bates, I was going to say misery uh, in terms of King's oh. Dominion, because if you think about that, it's. It's very similar being bound to the bed, whereas the torment and misery is a lot more external. I feel like this was obviously more of an internal struggle. 
Mm-hmm. It was like the classic external versus internal villain kind of thing. Um, I have one other quote that I found that was, it felt like very on the nose. Um, uh, should I read it? Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, page 309. And um, <clears throat> my edition, the smell tumbled Jesse back down a well of years and filled her with the helpless and articulate terror children feel when they sense some faceless, nameless creature, some it. Mm. waiting patiently beneath the bed for them to stick out a foot or perhaps dangle a hand and it is capitalized like a capital it you know so i was like Mm. oh yep that's a reference (laughs) i remember listening to that but i wasn't able to mark it but yeah especially knowing that it's capitalized oh yeah and he mentions definitely if it's the names of um yeah it's super capitalized like i i I can tell you that and is there Uh, a wink wink emoji afterward yeah (laughs) Yeah. yes yes there's a yes there's a winking emoji um, and they also in like around the same or toward the end of the book, he mentions other spots around Maine and he mentions mm-hmm. Derry and Castle Rock. Yeah. So. Well, and we've got, um, gosh, Norris and uh, Clutterbuck are the ones that catch um, Joubert. And they are the ones, the beloved deputies that I always picture Barney Fife as um, from Castle Rock. Or Needful Things, oh, yeah. sorry. Oh, good, yeah. good catch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, I always feel like I'm on a game show when we get to this part because I like, still need to, and I'm like on a losing game show. Where I'm like, yeah, that's oh my god, how did I not see that? Because I'm still new. <laughs> I feel that way too. I mean, yeah, we, we can't, we can't all. It's it's not a it's not a competition. We're not counting. Oh no, I'm learning so many yeah. things. <laughs> no, I know you should. I know you're trucking through uh, Dark Tower as well, and I feel like once you mm. complete those, you sort of level up, and you're your brain just starts looking for references like you can't Do turn I get it off. a new weapon? <laughs> yeah. But you it's upgrade. interesting to hear yeah. you guys talk about through like like eyes because I've grown up reading all of this stuff and sometimes like I realized I don't think I read anything but Stephen King for probably like a good year because I was doing the chronological reread. And so some of these things like the pound cake things sometimes that you guys pull out like I didn't catch because I'm just so used to hearing King's voice and his like descripting style. So it's interesting seeing like people who are like I guess in the real world and not just like down into this deep Stephen King well. Yeah, it's funny because fellow loser Dan Caffrey, uh, you know, we would read Stephen King a lot and he does a great Stephen King impersonation. And that's the voice that I hear Stephen King speak as. It's this sort (laughs) of fake main accent that Dan Caffrey does. So whenever Mm -hmm. there's something especially titillating in Pound Cake, I just start to crack up because I hear it in that voice. (laughs) Gotta hear this voice. Oh yeah. Yeah, let's hear it. Let's get him on the line right now. We can have another (laughs) call in voice on the blower. (laughs) But um yeah, is there any other references that you caught? I don't think so. There's definitely a few that slipped by me that that it especially because I did the audiobook. Um Mm -hmm. so there was no, you know, hard enunciation of that. But that's really funny that he he put that in there. yeah. Some it. <laughs> you yeah, should yeah. put that in the uh, review for the audiobook. Like, I'm sorry, you missed this key point here. Yeah, go go back and really <laughs> hit that. We're gonna take the it line again. Um, yeah, yeah. you didn't enunciate it enough. Yeah, it's like yeah. Je- Jesse capital letter. Jesse knew she would have to stand the stand. But. <laughs> anyway. uh, that's good. Well, I think uh, we've wrapped up King's Dominion, so that just takes us to our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. Okay, I'll be right there. I said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. 
now this is where we're just going to share. I mean, you know, we've obviously been breaking down throughout what we think, so it's not too hard to guess where we feel about or what we feel about this book. But does anyone have any kind of parting thoughts about this before we give our official ratings? I'll just start if it's in this Midwest standoff of politeness. Um, I'm an East Coaster, so I can just cut in line. Um, when I was first going through this book, I did find it very hateful. You know, it was very contemptuous and, you know, rightly so. But it was, you know, I, I love horror. I love monsters. I love gore. I love torture. All those sick things. But this book really hit me in a way that a lot of other Stephen King books had not. Um, you know, Jesse, because of her experiences, just finds the worst in people. But as I read it more and more, you know, she understood that she had that quality, that, you know, punching her brother, having this green sack of jealousy, and, or not jealousy, but, you know, hatred and anger uh, inside her. Uh, but yeah, it won me over over time. And I think even speaking with uh, you all about it, it's interesting hearing your perspective because, you know, just as a dude reading it, I couldn't tell if he was hitting this voice well if it was you know insulting um but it sounds like he overall did a good job with this story yeah I I, I can see what you're saying because there is a level of like just spite and like hate and darkness that cuts throughout um but I actually kind of had the opposite reaction to it I felt I found it like compassionate and I felt um because that's something that I've noticed in my own head if you can when you are so afraid that someone is going to find out or is going to like know how terrible you are because that's what the voice in your head tells you like you're always looking for terrible things about other people to try to like level yourself with them speaking of leveling up um and I found like just him naming that and saying it and helping Jesse kind of find like her empowerment to start like I don't think they ever do the grounding technique again in a positive way but I think she she finds compassion for herself especially towards the end and I loved like just hearing that acknowledged you know that this is something that people deal with and that this is what your head might sound like sometimes and it doesn't mean that you're you actually believe that that's another coping mechanism exactly yeah I I, I think without that coda at the end of, of having her find some compassion for herself in that passage that you read earlier, um, <clears throat> I think it would it would come off as a very dark and hateful book. And I mean, and it is still, but, but I think it needs to be because you're, you're going through that journey with her. Mm-hmm. And I, f- I found her to be pretty surprisingly relatable um, in ways that made me slightly concerned for myself, <laughs> um, but also was like, it was relieving to see a character like this written and represented um somebody who ha- is is getting in touch with that inner darkness and that anger because i think like something i've gone through a lot in therapy has been like it's okay to be angry and it's okay to express that anger but you have to do it in a in a helpful therapeutic way not in like a way where you just end up turning it in on yourself mm-hmm. um and i thought that this book you know i gotta hand it gotta hand it to king he did a good job um you know i was really surprised honestly because i was you know i was very suspicious going into this book like that he would be able to handle this subject matter well and he really did um from my pov definitely for me going into reading this i was apprehensive because in general just like in the beginning of the year february and march is a very like rough time period for me because I'm dealing with like black history and then theme and then women's month and you kind of like feel you're kind of, for me I'm going through a lot of emotions and I'm also trying to like specifically look towards female voices and like reading more of that material and like characters represented 
or female characters being written by women. So I was apprehensive going into reading this, knowing already from the movie what the kind of the storyline was going to be and knowing what I do know about King prior to reading this. So I wasn't sure if I was going to like it. And me, I, I would advise people who have never read King before or just starting and don't know as much. Like, you know, you have to kind of, I don't want to say suffer through, but like give, you know, take the time to walk away and come back because sometimes he can be, it can be exasperating trying to get through all the details to what he's truly trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, like, I agree. He did a, a really good job. There were times where he was stepping the line was, and it's a hard line to balance, especially because you don't know that perspective or you're representing something of a perspective, you know, or can recognize. Cause I, I think as one of you said before, like this is just one coping mechanism or way that someone has gone through their journey. It can come in many different shapes and forms. And this is not like the end all be all about what someone should experience or has experienced. So I Mm -hmm. think he did a really good job. And if you're a newbie coming in and don't really know that King kind of goes off on these tangents, just like power through (laughs) so that you can get to the good bits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really found myself relating a lot to the space cowboy it really it's like finally a character that speaks to my truth um yes. all right well i guess uh, jen would you like to give it a rating on a scale of one to five bright red pennywise clown noses yes um i this probably given the way i've talked about it it's probably not going to be surprising i'm going to give this five bright red pennywise clown oh wow there's part of me that's like i don't want to come out because this is my first book episode and i don't want to come straight out the gate giving it a five but i think i just really personally connect to this book i love it so much it's really kind of means a lot to me and has played like pivotal roles in like my own journey through like my therapy and just like kind of the course of my life and i think I don't think it's a perfect book, but I think a book about this, I don't know what else I would have wanted from it. And I think it gives me exactly like what I need. And like I was saying, like, I can see like the places of of therapy that like that I've been working on and like, oh, yeah, we talked about that in that session. And she's doing that here and she can and just all of that represented. I think like I feel like this book sees me, which is not something that I really experience that often when I'm reading books, especially from the 90s. Um, So, yeah, I'm going to give it a five. That's great. No, that's awesome. Yeah, Laura, do you have a rating? You know what? Fuck it. Uh, five bright Pennywise wow. clownos is for me too. At, at some point, I said uh, it, it just ticked up half a po- you know half a nose for me. So I was I was on the fence of like four four point five. But I think from this conversation, um, the criticisms I do have of it really pale in comparison to what it achieves. And like I said, I I, I agree it's not a perfect book. I think it could have been a little bit shorter. He could have cut the fat a little bit in, in a few places, but he managed better than he normally does in that <laughs> regard and and it has a great ending um i mean it, it, for king especially i think he really nailed this one um and it's a hard one to nail mm-hmm. not that, that i don't wish i hadn't used that phrasing <laughs> yeah geez <laughs> ah geez okay carry carry on you really stuck the landing um i usually, <laughs> I, I usually do i usually do <laughs> I feel like I'm always giving such harsh reviews now because I was like, I was at a hard four and that was like begrudging because I I think I've mentioned this several times before how I get so annoyed when he goes too far into detail mm-hmm. or unnecessary for unnecessary parts. Uh, and it drives me 
that drives me wild. So uh, I had a four, but like with this conversation, I'm going to give it a 4.5. Unfortunately, I still can't. I still can't give it a five. I think that's the highest score I've ever actually given to. Wow. <laughs> I know I'm harsh. No, no, you got somebody's got to be harsh. I was exactly. I really wanted to I wanted to give it four and a half still a little bit, but I, I, I was swayed by this, you know, thoughtful conversation on the subject. So I think your rating is perfect. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and as, as a critic, I try not to be swayed, but this definitely has swayed my view. Oh, this. Well. No, 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 no. I'm just I'm just saying I'm not criticizing you. Um, no, but just uh, like personally, uh, I try to have my firm score in mind, but I haven't yeah. really had that much time to kind of sit and digest this book since finishing it. And I do think, you know, I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it, but I feel a lot more positive. And I think you guys point out a lot of things that I missed or that, you know, flew right over my head. Um, so I was leaning for, but I'm actually going to go 4.5 bright red Pennywise clown noses. You're welcome, King. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think seeing the movie nice. before reading the book, um, you know, put me kind of on a blind path because I did enjoy the movie so much. And I think this mm. works maybe better as a shorter story. Um, it's almost could be a play because it's not really a whole lot of scene changes. But I think 4.5 mm-hmm. is a pretty solid score. And, uh, you know, I'm happy that everyone seemed to enjoy it. Because there's definitely books that, you know, we they're a slog that, to get through. But, yes. so, <laughs> check it out. Gerald's Game, watch the movie, read the book, look for the capitalized it in the story. <laughs> um, the enunciated it. The enunciated it. It. <laughs> it. It's a hard it. <laughs> Question mark hard after. It. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, thank you very much, constant listeners, for being on this journey. And as we like to end the episode... Long days, pleasant nights. Pleasant nights. You guys have to join in for that. Pleasant. Let's do it one more time. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. This Midwest standoff is killing us. Ready? Three, two, one. Long days. Long days. And pleasant, and pleasant nights. Pleasant nights. <laughs> All right. Good job, everyone. Mike's back from the dead. Uh oh. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. Consequence Podcast Network.